all. Welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel. Today, I'm joined by Johnny Coleman, friend of the show and Olympian extraordinaire, and Professor David Goldblatt. How are you all doing today? Great. Good, thank you. And uh, Professor, you're uh, visiting at Pitzer College right now, the author of several books uh, about soccer and the Olympics, uh, specifically the games, a global history of the games. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you're here in L.A., like why the L.A. Olympics is something that's caught your attention. Well, how can it not catch one's attention? You know, it's going to be an absolutely massive impact on the city. I teach a course on the history and politics of the Olympics, and even the barest familiarity with the history of the Games suggests that it is going to be bad news for most people in Los Angeles. Indeed, the more you study the Olympics, the uh, thinner the arguments become for staging the Games. And I think it's a really interesting moment in the history of the Olympics. You know, L.A. has got the games because the IOC really didn't have anybody else for 2028. They were really worried that there weren't going to be any bidders. Um, And we're coming to a moment where maybe it could be one of the last. I mean, I certainly hope so. Yeah, no, that would be nice. And and trying to make that a reality, Johnny, y'all have been super busy here in L.A. over the last six months since we did the, the no, uh, Rings of Hell series. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the activism that y'all have been, uh, been doing, uh, not just yelling at our Eric Garcetti, but also doing some canvassing and some coalition building and a lot of traveling. Yes, um, but also yelling at our mayor, too. You know, we never we never um, skip an opportunity to do that when it makes sense. In December, we shut down, we in a coalition of a lot of the groups, a lot of the housing justice groups that we've worked with, um, shut him down at a human rights day at, U- at, at USC, of all places, um, hosted by the UN, and he had the audacity to... Be, to to accept uh, the keynote speaker, even though a year before the UN had come down to Skid Row and said these are worse, these are worse. Um, there's there's more inequality here than in much poorer nations well, around the world. And it's also become a stopover for presidential candidates, where Tulsi Gabbard was just out like touring oh, right. Skid Row. Like Skid Row has become this poverty porn tour for people mm-hmm. who are seeking political power in the U.S. Yeah, it's like a stop in um, what's the thing on the red carpet. <laughs> Step and present or whatever. Yeah, it's like it's what yeah. you do to, to, to like virtue signal that you give a shit about unhoused people. You know, it's like part of the thing you do. But he, but we know that it's like everywhere in L.A. It's not just Skid Row and it's exploded. So we've been doing tons of projects. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we've more intentionally been doing in the last few months is um, um, doing more intentional canvases in different parts of town. Like really just starting, even though we're not like canvassing for a ballot or like to get there yet, like just really kind of talking to people and seeing what they know. It's both educational to us and like helps us refine our skills and figure out like what people in what neighborhoods are concerned about what issues that are, that are pegged to the Olympics. So we did Echo Park, we've done Highland Park. Um, We're going to be hitting some other areas soon as part of our hotel development project that we'll get into more later. We've been doing tons of educational outreach. We we, we spoke again at uh, David's class recently. Um, We just came back from a road trip up the coast to, um, to another kind of, Highly critical Olympic academic and author um, Jules Boykoff. We went to speak to his students up at Pacific University as well as University of San Francisco. We were in um, East LA yesterday presenting at a high school, um, which we've been doing, which we've been doing more lower level outreach to just people in LA, um, a lot of public schools. Um, we were in UCLA on Thursday. There was a conference. There was like a there's a housing conference uh, with a with another academic friend of ours. Like tipped us off to the fact that there was a a semi kind of liberal take on or, or non not super critical take on the olympics by the msu professor who's been studying this stuff um and of all schools to come from to be not critical of the olympics michigan state is uh Whew. is ridiculous yeah. um so we were there that was at ucla we were making plans for the fall and the summer as far as educational outreach in all levels we know that that's for me personally it's like where you have a ca- you know it's, it's your milieu it's like where you have a captive room of people who are for the most part genuinely interested in maybe thinking critically about stuff like yeah. that's what they're paying for that's why they're there um and that's a place too where the bid has been invited to some of these engagements and they've not only declined but just ignored them patently uh i'm not seeing a lot of outreach from olympic 2028 uh, i was wondering what you make of that do you think they're too afraid do you think they don't care like they're just silent it seems I mean, well, it all depends who you mean outreach to. I mean, people with money, real estate developers, television companies, Sponsors, corporations. Right. Oh, they're reaching out. Yeah. Don't, don't you worry about that. Um, but reaching out to the public, 
I mean, of course not, because then that's going to generate news. And once it starts generating some news, then there's going to have to be a critical voice. And these people know that their legitimacy is paper thin and actually the quality of their arguments, I mean, is laughable. I mean, you know, I asked my students to take a look at the LA 2028 site and come back to me (laughs) with like, okay, so what's the rationale? You know, what's the rationale for the LA 2028 games? And, you know, these guys are smart and they read it and said, well, it looks like the main argument is that the sun shines in L.A. <laughs> and this is this directly ties into something that y'all are, are uh, getting ready to launch, uh, which is really near and dear to our hearts here at Ground Game because we're in Hollywood and Hollywood's going to be a major site of development because what we're seeing is a lot of money being spent to house tourists, but not actual Angelinos. Yeah, we saw it um, last week at City Council. There was down by USC, another you know, in an area we're trying to hold take space at. Um, there's been a ton of gentrification around there, and there was there was a there was a lot that there were um, three different proposals on the table. Two of them were you know multi-use or something with some affordable, and then one of them was a Marriott hotel. Ha! Huh. Guess which one they chose. You know, and so and so so develop. You know, hotel development is. We've been. Um, I have a huge document right in front of me. We don't have time to super super duper get in the weeds of it. But you know, in the bid book, which you just mentioned, or you know, and the and the website. So I think it's in the dozens in Hollywood. It's displacing all sorts of folks. The crazy thing with this is that tourists don't come to the Olympics. I cannot believe that we're still having to listen to this nonsense. You know, all the evidence that has been collected suggests that during the games, levels of tourism actually decline because a lot of tourists go, oh, the Olympics are on. I think we'll give this a miss and come some other time. And it's not like the World Cup where genuinely you have very large numbers of traveling fans who are truly obsessed, you know, with football and with being part of the spectacle. People don't go to go and back their team at the Olympics. Like, I'm going to go back Team USA and support them. I mean, this is a completely laughable fantasy. I mean, Andrew Zimbalist's work on this in Circus Maximus, you know, which collects together all of the data that's been generated. It is unequivocal. Tourism drops during the Olympic Games. The idea that you need to build a lot of hotels to house a great influx of people is a complete and utter myth. So if they're not building for tourists who are coming for the games, they're not building for the city that the games are or that's hosting the games. Who are they building all of this stuff for? The stadiums, the hotels, like who's ultimately being served by this? Developers, you know, yeah. banks who are making money out of uh, what they're loaning on this. I mean. I'm not even sure in a kind of, you know, ruthlessly capitalist perspective it makes any sense. I mean, why would you spend, if you want to spend some money to make some money, invest in something else? Yeah, yeah, there are better ways to make money, I think, with like a far less like political opposition. But it's it's kind of the um, it's the most like naked form of like selling out your city for or like at least in theory, even though we know it displaces tourism. But like the idea that we want to cater, which is the Olympics have always kind of been about it's like you know, from LA 32 is like catering to this like mythical kind of richer, whiter person that's going to move here. But like those people have already been moving here. We're like kind of saturated with those people. We have tons of hotels and um, luxury apartment condos that are vacant every night already. And, it, but they're trying to manufacture this uh, hotel shortage crisis, they've called it for 2028 in order to kind of, you know, scare business communities and, and drum up more um, political capital. You know, it's for the politicians themselves. I think they benefit from this. Uh, absolutely. And, it's going to become a major part of our work because this bid was sold as a no-build Olympics again. So one of the biggest examples, and we've been organizing around and helping with Sage, who's one of the groups in our coalition, is um, the FIG, which is, uh, you know, in all likelihood probably going to happen. It's a multi-use down by USC, right by the 110 freeway, kind of right by that big Olympic 84 marquee on the other yeah. side of the 110. It's like right in this eye line of the Coliseum there and that other marquee. Um, but there's about, um, I think it's uh, seven or eight buildings um, they're all RSO. Uh, there's about um, 30-something units and about 70-so folks. It's like predominantly Latinx, some monolingual speakers, um, very working class. Um, all those people are going to get displaced. Yeah. They're going to get a, some sort of a small settlement. We'll, we'll probably never know. Um, and they will have to probably 
in most cases, leave L.A. It's it's something uh, I was talking to Trinidad from L.A. Tenants Union uh, about the Hillside Villas. And these are folks that were uh, displaced by the Staples Center build. Like they lived there and then the city kicked them out and gave them affordable housing, uh, which now the covenant's running out. And we're not seeing the city replace that affordable housing. Like we're not seeing the people who are displaced given any options. Um, what are you all doing to try and push the city to do that? Like what are you doing to target these hotel bills? Well, um, some of that will be um, kind of evident, a little bit clear in a couple months of kind of what some of our tactics are once we officially launch. But like, I don't think I'm, um, I think it's fair to say we'll be looking at the neighborhood you just mentioned in Hillside, where the Hillside Villa is in Chinatown and in Hollywood will probably be major um, areas that we're focusing on. Like obviously with the hundred or so, whatever hotels, like we're not going to be able to fight. We don't have the resources to fight all of them, but we're definitely going to um, focus on a few and the tactics you'll see, um, and 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 we'll you'll probably see us aligning more formally with labor, which a lot of anti-Olympic movements in the past have had issues with. Or when I talked to No Boston originally, they were like, "Don't hold your breath with labor," but like, there's a lot of concerns from a lot of different parts of the LA left or just communities in general, and we know that. You know, so much of our campaign is always threading like what is going on now with this the specter of this thing that could make it worse somehow, even though things are staged. You know, just just in the red everywhere. Um, but we're going to be. You, hopefully, you'll see more different parts of the coalition. And the, you know, there's so many groups that we work with that aren't officially in our coalition. Like that will kind of be activated through this. You know, because we're only as strong as you know, like the coalition or like people, the work, the, the work that's being done between different groups that might not otherwise be coming together is. And um, so we're kind of trying to be the glue with that and trying to really focus on the hotel aspect because so much of this stuff was born out of housing and homelessness work. And, uh, and that's really, and so like hotels is really, is really where a lot of the action's happening right now. And like, and it's, it, it's, I mean, you could probably speak more to what's going on specifically in Hollywood, but like we're even, you know, we're even hoping to um, work more and more with organized unhoused people too as well. That's something that's, you know, has its own set of like unique challenges, but like work that's going on in Street Watch and other parts of like our coalition, I can see these things kind of all like, it's all pointing to Hollywood right now. Um, even though like a year ago, sorry, a, a year ago, I wouldn't necessarily um, have, have seen that's where it's going. And then the other element too, which we didn't really like, we don't really know a lot about yet because we've been waiting, but there will be the first um, policing meeting in, it'll oh. be almost two years. It's coming up in May. Um, some people uh, in the coalition will be attending the first, it, it was supposed to be last fall, but it was scheduled to be right after the day after that like horrific like, um, bar shooting. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so, the, yeah, the uh, the one at the uh, Country Western Bar up in uh, Thousand Oaks. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. And this, and, this, and this meeting is also happening there. So once we have some more kind of details from them, because I was going back in the LAPD website, which they still have to this day. You can look up the 84 Olympics and they talked, they were bragging about how, oh, our operation started in 1979. To like, which, well, they're starting now. I mean, look at what happened during the LA Marathon. Suddenly, you know, it, it's a dry run for 2028. You know, and once again, what is the main mission? It's to sweep the homeless off the streets, you know, and it just, I mean, it is just shocking that that's the priority in policing. I mean, you know, obviously LA 2028 is not the first to do this, you know, I mean, Atlanta, 35,000 people in downtown Atlanta, you know, 45, 50% of the hostels for the unhoused in Atlanta were knocked down to build the monstrosity that is uh, Centennial Park. And, you know, people were being issued, you know, with one-way tickets, you know, to home, in inverted commas. I mean, it was so systematic in Atlanta in, uh, in the early 1990s that they were mass-producing dockets, right? Police dockets with male, African-American, unhoused, already in the tick boxes to hand out, to ship people out. Yeah, and we had that in 84. You know, we're kind of like trying to, you know, L.A. is like a very, like unoriginal place or that's the cliche right like we're rebooting what happened in 84 which was horrific and monday is actually the the anniversary of the 92 uprising yeah so we'll be out at la can talking about how and i know we've done this on this podcast before but in case you haven't uh you know heard that before but like there's a lot of correlation between the 1984 olympics and the 90, 1992 uprising um go check it out we've written a lot about it other people have um and so, yeah, and, and that criminalization angle obviously will work hand in hand with hotel development too, right? Like we're, and it's good, you know, and that kind of goes back to the other bids, the business business improvement districts who a lot of people have been doing a lot of records requests around. And another thing we've been working on too to expand is our, um, our more 
journalistic uh, records digging kind of research power mapping program, which I don't want to spill too many of the beans on yet, yeah. but like we will be publishing some stuff and uh, very soon um, related to records with the mayor's office, um, potentially USC, LAPD, UCLA. We're digging in all of these areas in a way that we didn't really have time to when we were starting out, but now that we kind of have we're all a little bit smarter. We're all a little bit more savvy, and we're you know our organizing skills have been sharpened in the last because we're almost it's almost two years that we've been up and running. Um, and yeah, I think this year we'll, we're going to see the kind of the policing, the hotel work, and then all the stuff happening with services, not sweeps, because that's another coalition that we're part of. Where if you're not aware of that, like um, the city's been treating unhoused people and encampment sweeps really inhumanely and illegally for a long time. Street Watch has been um, documenting this. They have the evidence, I think, to, sh to, to bring them to court. They've been negotiating with the mayor's office. The mayor has been taking his sweet time and has basically told them to fuck off during the well, state of the he, city. Yeah, he had that very nice like complaint about the Mitchell case and people who care more about property rights than getting people off the street. Uh, what I wanted to ask about real quick before we move on from this section is the knock-on effects regionally, because you've been doing some traveling with no Olympics like up and down the state. I imagine in London we saw, you know, when people get displaced, they get displaced somewhere else. Like the, the region where the games happen is just as effective as the actual city that's hosting it. And I was wondering if you could talk about, are people prepared for that? Like are people outside of LA do they understand how much this is going to affect their city? I mean, I met a I met a, a young woman in, in Portland this last week who's from Riverside, and she's graduating soon. And um, you know, uh, she's probably moving back home this summer, and hopefully, she'll come out and organize with us. But that's kind of like outside of the ring of you know, it's a, a different county. Um, there probably won't be any um, at this point any sporting events there, but who knows? There could be maybe. But there are all sorts of indirect, and those are kind of the harder things to kind of for us to prove at this point any kind of like correlation between issues but we know that like you know and just everything is like inextricably linked within, within capitalism and that like um uh, our problem is only our problem for so long before it's beginning like all the people getting priced out of LA where are they going to go yeah. so maybe we're sort of these ring cities what does that mean are these cities equipped to handle these people or you know this this new influx of people and like what does that look like? I I honestly don't know and I I, I can't see many situations where this would like benefit folks just to have yeah. a whole like massive wave of people um, squeezed into a place that doesn't have a you know a lot of, there isn't a ton of vacancy in a lot of these places. Yeah, I mean a good example of this kind of uh, uh, regional consequences in uh, Rio twenty sixteen where seventy thousand people are uh, displaced at least by the uh, Olympic building program. And a good chunk of them um, get displaced right to the edge of the city where there's, of course, no transportation. And yes, they get new houses under the Mi Casa Mi Vida uh, program established by uh, the Brazilian government. But then it turns out, of course, they're moved to places with no services, no jobs. Uh, and, you know, within a year, of course, they're run by the local drug gangs. Uh, and all you've done is, you know, you've created a new favela in kind of slightly more modern accommodation, 40 miles out, even more impossible to live in uh, than the ones that people were already in. Right. Like, I mean, like going back to the core and especially if you haven't heard any other stuff about us before, it's like this is the Olympics give people in power the pretext to do the stuff that they've always wanted to do. And it lets them say the quiet part loud and like lets them like, you know, like just make it yeah oh, this is me vita me you know let's let's put a let's put a positive spin on this stuff like no you're removing people from the city because you don't want them there because they don't make you money and they don't give you any political capital yeah and that's what, what we're really seeing so like that's and that's what they want to do in most of these people in general the, the type of person who would invite the olympics is the type of person yeah who will you know want to like kind of what they do to skid row but now that it's all kettled in skid row now they want to just ship it off somewhere else well and it also seems like you're giving uh joe buscaino's pitch on the olympics because that seems to be like his take is oh hey we can really ramp up policing and like crack down on these people uh other folks on the city council have a little bit different perspective i guess like gil Cidio wants to be an artist uh because he suddenly decided to retouch some of the the mural art that uh came up during the 84 games so let's talk yeah. a little bit about that because it kind of blew up in his face yeah there's there's so there's two kind of mural controversies happening happening right now in Los Angeles. And um, for those who don't know, in the LA 84 games, a bunch of murals were commissioned by all sorts of different artists. Um, you know, some of the murals better than others. I used to be in the, the art criticism kind of game. So I don't know, like some, some of them are, you know, some of them I like. And I think, you know, like when I moved here, I'm like, oh, that's a cool mural. Um, there was there was a long, this part of the cultural Olympic legacy. And it's one of the few you can actually point to, I think, in LA. And um, 
So Gil Cedillo, who's one of the, he's, he's my council member personally, and he's uh, not a great, not a great dude. And um, he voted for the Olympics, of course, because they all did. Yep. And he, um, he, there's, there was one mural from 84 by an artist named Frank Romero called Going to the Olympics. And it was like a love letter to the car and to the Olympics. And so what they wanted to do uh, in Highland Park was to, well, A, they removed a community mural um, by an artist named Zender, um, who's from the neighborhood, uh, I think it was like grandfathered in or had been there for like a long enough time that everyone has kind of just kind of de facto just like accept like this is part of the community. Um, I think overnight it was it, it was it was it was uh, literally whitewashed. It's kind of sitting there right now behind a chase bank on Figueroa. Um, we think it's going to be they're going to start moving on this. But anyway, so they, they wanted to get an artist from the 84 Olympics to, to, to paint a sequel mural called go into the Olympics dot 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 again. I think the idea of writing a love letter to the car, to the automobile in 2019, it feels really weird and mis misplaced since they're going to kill us in oil and all that stuff. Um, so uh, some local artists that were kind of part of the group that was like really upset about this, restorative justice for the arts and some other kind of random community members came to us and they were like, they saw this Olympic mural. They're like, and, and, and who was sponsoring this Olympic mural? A real estate company in Highland Park who's, and, and for those who don't know, Highland Park is definitely one of these contested gentrifying neighborhoods. Um, and a lot of people are, you know, working class Latino folks are like at risk of displacement. There's all sorts of rent strikes and actions. And uh, the L.A. Tenants Union is very, very active there. And anyway, so they saw this and they saw looked came to us and said, like, this is they're using the Olympics to like gentrify this neighborhood right now, even though, again, there's like probably not going to be any like sporting events in Highland Park, at least at least right now. So we we started canvassing. We, we, we set up shop right outside Gil Cedillo's office. We said, you know, we don't we don't think the community wants us. Let's have a discussion about this. Like the, it was kind of a microcosm for our whole bid. Like there was no public input. It was real estate interest driving this. We're like, oh, this is this is potentially winnable. It's one one mural. It's one skirmish that we think we can win. And it's not, and it's an opportunity to be in the neighborhood more and kind of doing outreach, seeing what people think about a gentrification. Um, anyway, so we did that on a Saturday. On Monday, Gil Cedillo's website says, oh, it's no longer the, the Olympic mural. They changed the theme of it, assuming that would get us off their backs, I think. Um, which also showed us how easily kind of uh, unnerved they are. Um, we've, 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 uh, we've since written a bunch of letters to the artist himself because he used to be, I think, a little bit more radical in the 70s. Like, a, he used to live in the neighborhood. He doesn't anymore spend some time in Europe now. So I feel like he's kind of, like, maybe doing all right and maybe just doesn't know what's going on on the ground. Um, he hasn't returned any of our, our, our letters yet. Um, they may well move forward with this mural, but it's kind of, they won't be the last you hear of us on this, um, especially because a lot of our members are based in that area. And then, and then simultaneously, just last week, another kind of vaunted uh, Olympic mural from 84, especially because it was, it, I forget the title of it, but it was, it was all the women marathon runners because they were trying to uh, celebrate the fact that this is the first time women were allowed to compete in and, a marathon. And it's this great. was also, this is the one that's on the freeway from what I right. remember. Yeah. Not anymore. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's right, right by 4th Street downtown. It was one of those big sprawling ones that you could see if you're stuck in rush hour traffic down there, that jam. Um, and, you know, throughout the years, I think graffiti had come on and off and they blah, blah, blah. But there was a lot of graffiti on it. Long story short, uh, I think Caltrans just uh, whitewashed it one day. Yeah. They, did, they didn't know or something. And I think it was more incompetence than anything deliberate. But, like, this is, like, one of the cherished murals. The artist is furious. She's calling – she's like, I don't know if any artist will participate in 2028 cultural stuff because they're – they, I mean, rightfully pissed off. They, they, they didn't even know. They had to, like, open the newspaper. They're whitewashing their work. Even the stuff that they claim to care about, as soon as it's not politically useful anymore, they're literally whitewashing these things. So that's an area we can – you'll probably see more activity around, especially because we have a lot of artists in our group. And I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of, you know, history – precedent of both the games trying to use art to sell and, you know, as the lubricant, but also resistance I mean, ever movement. since Berlin 1936 – Olympic organizers have been, you know, taking control of the visual space and, you know, the visual scape of cities. I mean, in that occasion, of course, dressing it with swaz stickers. But um, that has been repeated in other ways uh, and reinforced by the IOC's obsessive um, control over its own trademarks and anybody else's use. So, you know, you have to, as part of the deal when you uh, sign up for the Olympics, you know, you're agreeing that what can, you know, be visually displayed in a city is tightly controlled according to the needs of the IOC. Um, so I think this is a really important battleground, a really important place to be challenging uh, the Olympics. And one of the interesting uh, examples of that is Mexico 68, where the um, the uh, 
sort of icon of the games within Mexico City was rather laughably a dove of peace on a blue <laughs> background that was plastered all over the city. And of course, this is at the time that 300 um, protesters and students are being slaughtered a couple of days before the games begin by the Mexican security forces. And one of the most effective um, challenges uh, during the games is that students then went round the whole city flicking flecks of red paint like blood across the doves and that's powerful stuff um and you know you know um art can sometimes be a real challenge so in 76 at montreal uh corridor was an open air um art installation exhibition across the city in olympic sites that had been part of the deal and when the mayor realized actually that much of it was deeply critical of the olympics and deeply critical of his urban renovation programs and processes of gentrification he called out the bulldozers tore the thing down you know on the grounds of course of health and safety i mean an extraordinary act of censorship um Vancouver 2010 again is interesting where you know you had widespread um, anti-olympic graffiti that the city attempted to criminalize and actually this goes you know to uh, to the courts in Canada and uh, I'm pleased to say that you know that was actually rescinded uh, and the graffiti remained um, but it tells you the length to which uh, the IOC and its acolytes will go to try and control the visual space, not just of what goes on the screen, but the city as well. So I think it's really, really important, you know, as an act of resistance and challenge, is to not let them get away with it and put up the alternative messages. And, you know, when the television cameras come here, as they will in their millions and millions, let's give them something else to look at. Let's give them another message. Absolutely. And we have um, we'll get to it later what the, the details of the fundraiser but we have a zine we're about to publish for the first time um, we have a few new artists um, in our ranks as well and a lot of us already come from an art background and I found a way to actually I think this makes sense to talk about last night I was at a USC grad student thesis show and it's someone who's kind of been working with us now too um, on various projects his name is Oscar David Alvarez he's from LA um, he did a really amazing um, performance piece last night that kind of accelerated and put you in like in I felt really uncomfortable and I felt really um uh like I was forced to participate in this in this performance art piece where it started it started outside with a kind of pagan-esque you know opening ceremonies where they had all these performers and leotards and were playing off the olympic iconography then it went inside but as we went inside all of the performers were kind of uh, heckling us to smile and to do different things and to like if we wanted to take photos we had to we had to pay um, and buy a little um, a 3D printed version of the Coliseum so we had to buy a stadium and they were literally walking around slapping cameras out of people's hands if they weren't paying them if you if you did pay you got to you got to go in the corner and see one of the the athletes perform and all of a sudden I realized that there's a giant obstruction in the middle of the room and it's it feels like I'm in scaffolding it feels like I'm in a space that and I look down and then these concrete um, little um, pieces on the ground that I kind of barely noticed when I walked in I'm like oh that's a sidewalk they created a sidewalk here and like we're supposed to be in the streets and it was it was really I was laughing a couple other Olympics folks were there like I was laughing I felt really uncomfortable and like there was there was this like murmur of like uh, police uh, helicopters in the background that came in and out like you know it was very well done it, it, it was it was an amazing show and and it, the fact that it's happening at USC, you know, blocks away from where this stuff is happening and having other people have came to this and kind of got to their own conclusion, but now they saw what we're doing and hopefully we're kind of going to be in dialogue more and using the educational system to, and especially the art schools, the filmmakers, documentary work that we've been working on kind of under the radar. Um, and yeah, this is a town, like for better or worse, that is the cliche of like it is dominated by the visual, right? Like in different ways. And like we have a lot of talented folks behind you know, that do work with us. We have we've had a lot of people come to us and say that like, you know, the bid book, for example, for 2024 slash 2028. We have people we know who worked on that on the agency's side that are like that were just like laughing at about how like kind of how bad the aesthetics of 2028 are. How anodyne. Are. Yeah. How anodyne and dull. I mean, really, you're going to be selling Los Angeles on the fact that it's sunny here? Yeah. This is just, like, absurd. Yeah. You know, Los Angeles is a truly extraordinary city. There are lots of amazing things to say about it. Absolutely none of them are in that bid book. I mean, please, like, you know, the city of beaches still, 
I mean, this is like 15 million people in the greater metropolitan area. You know, less than a million are actually living in like beach towns. I would, I would have said, and and still, that's the trope. I mean, their heads are stuck in the 80s. Like Wasserman and, and Garcetti, like their whole outlook is stuck in this like idyllic version of the 80s, where it, the vast majority of people who, if you lived in LA, have a totally different picture of like the 80s, and they're trying to recreate this thing. Right? It's like how Disney was trying to recreate the childhood he never had because yeah. he was like a working kid. It was like an impoverished and like Disneyland is this like utopia thing that like a recreation of a thing that never existed. And that's what literally yeah. this feels like. I, right uh, talking a little bit about resistance that we've seen across the globe, because when we did uh, Rings of Hell, Calgary was voting on their Olympic bid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing a lot of stuff pop off in Paris as well, which is going to be the next Olympics, because, you know, like we've said, uh, the you know when they were asking to bid for 2024 and 2028, only two cities threw their hands up and wanted to go through on that. So yeah. let's talk about what's so, been happening yeah. in Paris and sort of what the fallout from that Calgary vote has been. Sure. So Calgary voted them out in December. So that's for... Uh, uh, 2026, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, because there's been a lot of jumping around between 2026 and 2030 for the Winter Games. Uh, Denver also voted them out as well for, I believe, is 2026 as well. And they're working on another ballot measure to make it so that if the IOC ever wants to return, there has to be uh, a public vote, oh, So, which okay. is really cool. Yeah. They didn't just stop after they'd kicked it out. They're like, no, let's create more. That's still not perfect. Like, we, we would always want to go further, but, like, it's a, it's a great step in the right direction if they can make that happen. So the IOC is having a ton of problems trying to get people lined up for 2026, 2030. Um, only two cities are, are actually entering the 2026 bidding process. Um, well, one's like a country bid. but um, So we've been monitoring that, trying to see where there's, there's resistance. Um, there's 2022 in Beijing. We haven't seen much happening there um, as far as like an opposition movement that's kind of gotten on our radar. But 2024 was awarded at the same time as 2028 historic because of historical unpopularity and weird pressure that they were feeling, the IOC. Um, no one is writing about this right now, but we've been talking to, there are two different coalitions in France, um, right? And so, and we know that kind of like Paris and France probably has a more healthy democracy or has more kind of public input, protests, actions. I, I mean, they've been getting that recently. There's been some very direct democracy I mean, the in Gilets Jaunes yeah. have been very busy these last four or five months. And there's some overlap with one of the coalitions with that too. And I can see that kind of overlapping even more. So, the, the, you know, to cut to the chase is that Two of the coalitions recently, or the two coalitions recently announced that they're they're running mayoral candidates in the next Parisian election. Um, one of them probably skews closer to like the Olympic side, like an eco-socialist platform, but they're both centering canceling the bid as like a high priority in their platforms. And at the same time that they announced this, uh, a public opinion poll, um, it was a media poll, I believe, it wasn't commissioned by either of the groups, um, came out and, and, and said that 62% of Parisians support canceling the bid. And in my mind, that's it seems like they already have the uh, the, the circumstances for, for a referendum. And I think the politics of this are made more intense in Paris by the burning of Notre Dame. And suddenly, out of the woodwork, you know, billionaires in France can suddenly produce all of this money. People want to pay up, you know, at a time when, um, you know, Parisian uh, and French public services, small towns, those in low-income groups are seriously, seriously struggling. And it's the same thing. There's money suddenly for the Olympics. There's money suddenly for Notre Dame. But when it actually comes to democratically mandated needs and taxation, oh, no, nobody wants to pay up. Now there's no money. Mm -hmm. And I think this is going to feed in in Paris, and I really hope um, that we um, that we see you know an acceleration of this. I mean, can they win the uh, candidacy for for the mayor? I think that's going to be tricky. But you know, um, it can certainly build resistance and it can certainly advertise the insanity at this time when there are so many pressing needs in this world. You know, and not that I'm against rebuilding Notre Dame. I mean, obviously, this is an extraordinary kind of cultural treasure, but. You know, the needs, we've got 12 years to sort out climate catastrophe, you know, and you want to rebuild Notre Dame, you want to restage the Olympics. I mean, this is just tangible madness. Right. It's stuff. It's stuff over people. You know, it's like, and it's like, I come from a, you know, like a cultural artistic appreciation world, but like the material realities in these, in Paris and LA, it's like people are dying unnecessarily on the street every, every goddamn day. Um, and we were such both Paris and LA are such wealthy places. We fucked it up so bad, and things like the Olympics throughout the years have like helped make inequality much, much worse. And I, th- I don't know. I think yeah, even if even in 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 defeat on the mayoral side, I think it sounds like they have. Um, and again, like I haven't, 
I'm not an expert on um, the wonkery of like running running a bit running a referendum in in Paris and what that what that actually looks like. But it all seems to be at least it seems like if the, you know this polling is anywhere remotely accurate that like there's a public mandate to cancel them. And like, I think that'll manifest. And I think they have a lot of time to make that happen. This is only other happened one other time in Olympic history with the Denver 76 bid. They were awarded the bid, scare quotes. Um, and then afterwards, they forced a referendum, kicked them out. And unfortunately, another city got them. But it, if, you know, it's something we're not in LA in a ton of control of. But like, if if that were to happen with 2024, a, I would, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, if the 2024 bid got camp canceled, I think that would create all sorts of great chaos for for us. I think in the short term, our mayor would say we want the 2024 Olympics, but like that would be like absolute. But, but I'd be willing to have him look silly doing that because there's absolutely no way we would be ready for that. Like, we're not ready for 2028. The city has come out and said we cannot satisfy the 28 by 28 infrastructure projects we don't know how we're going to do this actually we're, like we're not going to be able to get rid of all the tents that was another yeah. thing that came out of the state of the city is oh our whole big goal to like quote unquote solve homelessness yeah totally not going to be able to do that just learn to live with that but we'll consider it a success uh, i did want to ask uh, like historically speaking paris is very linked to the games is this resistance kind of new like in in what we're seeing as far as people actually speaking up against the games because uh, I, I forget his name, but the French aristocrat that really helped start the games. Baron de Coubertin. Yeah, really saw this as like, this is going to put Paris on the map and really feed the French martial spirit. So is is this new like 21st century resistance a sea change or just something where we is, haven't seen before? It is a sea change, though there is an interesting um, form of resistance to the Olympics in its very earliest days. The second Olympic Games in 1900 is staged in Paris alongside the Exhibition Universelle, the world's fairs of that era. <laughs> And um, de Coubertin, who had arranged for the first games to be held in Athens, planned to hold the second one in Paris. And he thought that he would be able to go to the French authorities and say, OK, you're holding the Exhibition Universelle. Why not let the Olympics be the sort of sporting dimension of this alongside it? And um, the senior civil servants um, who were running the uh, the um, Exhibition Universelle kind of looked at him askance and said, you know, number one, we've already got our own sports program. Thank you very much. Number two, we are going to have a sports program along Republican and Democratic lines. So we are going to have male events, female events, because, of course, the first Olympics has no women, no people of color. Right. Bands, professionals, whatever that means. Uh, and they're saying, no, no, we're going to have we're going to have one that actually reflects democratic and republican values. And frankly, you can take your neo-Hellenic cult of the Victorian gentleman athlete and stick it. And de Coubertin was, you know, I mean, taken aback because, I mean, as as the case with all of these people, you know, in the last 120 years of the IOC, they can't believe that anybody wants to turn them down. And actually, they had the nerve to turn them down. And so the 1900 Olympics actually are a kind of fantasy myth created post hoc by the um, by the International Olympic Committee because the uh, Republican Games go on all over Paris and, you know, de Coubertin and a few of his acolytes are sort of running around the city trying to deem some of them when they're not professional, you know, uh, oh, that's an Olympic event. And so, you know, many of the people who competed in 1900 didn't know they were at the Olympics and didn't get their medal till like 10 years later and only because the IOC retrospectively deems those events the Olympics. So while there hasn't been a long history of anti-Olympic resistance on the ground, there is actually in France political tradition, a kind of, you know, a sort of democratic attitude mm -hmm. to, to the sporting spectacle that says, you know, who the hell are you people to come in and decide, you know, that you want to hold the Olympics and, you know, your pathetic model of sport? Because let's not, you know, let's not forget alongside all of the disastrous urban and political consequences of the Olympics, they are also peddling a model of elite sport that is deeply pernicious, you know, uh, and that is never, never reflected upon and, and getting worse. I mean, okay, they, you know, we no longer exclude women, we no longer exclude people of colour, you know, so those traditions within the Olympic movement have changed, though I would rather hasten to say that the IOC itself is not a bastion of diversity or progressiveness, but it retains this absurd model of elite sport that um, I think is increasingly actually abusive 
of the athletes um, who are involved in it. There is an epidemic, clearly, of sexual abuse in many sports. Um, there is um, an epidemic of mental illness amongst athletes, let alone the pressures of doping and the health consequences of that. And then above all else, we have to stomach these people saying, yes, yes, but if you put more great athletes on more screens, more people will then, you know, take up sport and you'll have a healthier society. And this, again, is simply not true. My word, if the United States, you know, if this were true, you know, the United States has got more sport on more screens than I care to think about. And yet, you know, obesity you know, and inactivity are at historically high rates. So, you know, even at the level actually of the sporting culture, you know, let alone, you know, uh, the urban development uh, consequences of the Olympics, there is a profound lie at work. Yeah, at every level, they don't satisfy any of either the lofty or the kind of even more the concrete things of creating more athletes. It's like, it's just and, and and just on the in, in America, if you watch the Olympics, it's a bad television show. It's bad sports coverage. It's not. If you care about sports, like the like to your point earlier, the Olympics are for casual sports fans. Yeah. That like versus the World Cup, which is for fanatics. Like by and large, the people who tune in every four years to the Olympics do not follow those sports anywhere in between, and they're really sucked in by these corny, pappy human interest stories. That's how NBC runs them in America. It's like it's a deficient entertainment product, even though that's not. The number one criticism of ours, it's like if you like sports, if you like the athletes, they're getting they're getting screwed over in all sorts of different directions. They're not getting paid. They're getting uh, exploited, abused and uh, all these other different things. And the show, the TV show itself sucks. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's pretty terrible television. I think every time the Olympics come around, one of my favorite things online is seeing the, the bad takes because it's just 24 hours of nothing coverage. And like if you just have people talk for 24 hours straight, they're going to say a lot of dumb stuff because you don't have that much interesting stuff to say. Well, the tragedy is there would be some interesting things to say. You know, I mean, on the one hand, you know, you've got people from like every single country in the world. So if you actually manage to not just focus on your own country and Britain is as bad as the United States where the whole thing becomes becomes a, you know, a patriot fest and mm-hmm. just focusing on your own athletes. Like, like, raise your eyes up, people. Check in with the rest of the world. What are their stories, number one? Number two, the moment there's any hint of resistance from athletes or challenge, you know, from Carlos and Smith onwards, suddenly, you know, it's news blackout or it's kind of criticism heaped upon them. You know, so... Uh, that's the tragedy. I mean, you know, if these people are quite good sort of storytellers. They understand that. I'm not against taking the human and personal dimension. But, like, let's have a more complex understanding of who sports people are and what sports represents. You know, tell us something interesting about the sports. I mean, you know, have you ever had the misfortune to read the official guide to sports at the Olympics? Oh, my God. You know, I mean, really, I'd rather drink bleach or take an overdose of Valium. In fact, it is an overdose of Valium. So, you know, there's incredible stories to be told in many sports, complex, interesting social stories, acts of resistance. You know, so with the marathon, why do we not hear about the 1936 Games, which is won by a Korean, okay? But he's forced because Korea and his career is colonised by the Japanese to run in a Japanese kit. And when he gets his gold medal, you know... He basically looks down like he's ashamed. And then this is plastered all over the Korean nationalist press. A massive act of resistance. You never hear anybody talk about that. Field hockey, right? Okay, not everybody's sport. In 1928, India wins its first gold medal at the Olympics in field hockey. It's competing under the Union Jack flag. It's still a colony of Britain. But when the team win and celebrate, they do it with the flag of the Indian National Congress. And winning a gold medal, playing field hockey, becomes a way of turning round to the colonizers and say, we can beat you at your own game. This is powerful stuff. You know, we forget in the hail of criticism that we rightly bring to the Olympics that sports on occasion can create alternative imagined communities, Mm -hmm. can suggest that another world is possible. And what drives me crazy is that is completely excised Mm -hmm. from the story of the Olympics that is being told by the mainstream media. Yeah, it's to me, to me in America with NBC, it's like all bootstrapping narratives. I overcame this because of the sheer magic of my which is like this american except which is like if you did that great like but it's like that's a really weird narrative that like capitalism needs to kind of like thrive and it's like not as interesting as like some of these other narratives that you're talking about that are actually like 
tell you about people and tell you about the transnational aspect of all these people coming together and like all the complexities and well, human and the, differences, cultural differences, yeah, what, you know, and all the, the historical priming that goes into it. And I, I think it's great that you all mentioned nationalism because as we're talking about Tokyo in 2020, because Japan is going through a real resurgence of nationalism, trying to rebuild their military, trying to offset China and without giving too much short shrift to these very complex global political issues, Japanese nationalism is really feeding into the narrative coming out of Tokyo at the moment. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what's going on in the ground there because it seems like that's going to be the next battleground after Seoul. Yeah, so... In Tokyo, which we've been talking to activists in Tokyo since right around around two years now when we got started, um, you know, in all intents and purposes, it like looks like barring an act of God, like the 2020 Olympics next year are going to happen. You know, they're kind of they're they've been in like harm mitigation mode for a while. Um, but there's all sorts of like nasty things happening in the name of the Olympics, right, to make them happen. Um, I'll, I'll rattle off like a short list of like. Um, These lists are never short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll try to make it as brief as possible. Uh, I'll read a couple uh, headlines, uh, maybe, and that'll just give you a kind of taste for uh, what's going on. Uh, Tokyo 2020 Olympics, colon, facial recognition to be used to boost security. Uh, man evicted for 1964 Tokyo Olympics faces same fate in 2020. So a guy uh, evicted for 1964 is getting displaced again, um, which is just absurd. Uh, Japan faces water quality issues ahead of the 2020 Olympic Games. Uh, 2020, uh, Tokyo 2020 costs increasing, colon, governor. Um, what that didn't mention is that as we, as we sit here today, it's about $20 billion over budget with a B. It's about four times or five times what they originally, so it was a couple billion dollars and then now it's. But we're not going to spend any money here in LA, right? We can. Oh, but we don't have, but LA doesn't have the same problems that literally every other city and every other culture has, um, had keeping these things on budget. Um. Another another interesting thing is that they're going to be holding aquatic events in Fukushima. Aquatic events. I mean, you know, originally they were just going to have baseball, which is bad enough. But aquatic events, you know, where the uh, the level of radiation in uh, the water is, you know, at a level that is a serious danger to health. And I think that's the most, really the most extraordinary thing about the Tokyo 2020 Games is that, you know, Japan is actually in a state of nuclear emergency. You know, Fukushima is so not dealt with and so, you know, technologically, environmentally, in social terms. It is a disaster. It's going to be a disaster for the next 10 years. And the Japanese government and the Japanese nuclear industrial complex is desperately trying to normalize the situation. You know, they're withdrawing subsidies from people who left the area because of radioactivity so they could live somewhere else. They're now withdrawing those, trying to push people, go back there where there's no work, no jobs but an awful lot of radiation, you know. And this is from, uh, you know, the Japanese, you know, government, which has lied systematically about levels of radiation danger, has falsified earthquake uh, data and the repair of buildings, and still has not sorted itself out in terms of what it's actually going to do with the reactors. This is beyond appalling, and the IOC are colluding with this process of normalisation. And this from an organisation, you know, the IOC, which has got pretty threadbare ideological um, <laughs> you know uh, principles you know one of the things it says is okay we are committed to green Olympics to global environmental sustainability I mean how you do that with the carbon footprint of an Olympics I do not know but even so the very least you could do is not collude with the normalization of a gigantic you know, the world's worst environmental and nuclear disaster since Chernobyl, you know, certainly comparable. I mean, man, those earth, you know, those reactors are still sitting on an earthquake fault line, you know, without seawalls to defend them, you know, from a tsunami that would come and they want to go and stage softball and baseball and everything's okay while you're spending $27 billion you know, on Tokyo. I mean, this is beyond a joke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and no one's talking about it. There's other stuff like, you know, they're always going to, or in almost every situation, just break their promises like, oh, we're going to, this protected, like, woodland area over here, we're not touching it. Of course, getting raised. Um, the heat, like, it's going to be fucking hot in late July, early August next year in Japan. Like, like a lot of other places have, have historically hot summers and they're one of the solves that they try they, so like when are we going to do that how are we going to do the marathon they're going to have to it's going to have to be in the middle of the night but they're so afraid that one of the ideas one of the solutions is is a canadian like pharmaceutical company said oh we're going to create a pill that'll regulate the athlete's body temperatures like just like it's it's bullshit it's all bullshit and then you know i mean in the bit document you know they claim 
July to August is the perfect time for hosting the Olympics for climactic reasons. You know, they must have cut and pasted from the 1964 yeah, they, they bid book, but that was held in October. And of course, climate change means we know Tokyo summers are absolutely boiling and totally humid. You know, and now they're, you know, the solution is, oh, maybe offices and houses along the marathon route could open their doors and let their uh, air conditioning How come pathetic out. is that? Like, just like, it's like a child trying to like, figure out a way to build like a rocket to the moon just built with all this like fake science and like instead of moving the event or like you know if like if you're them trying to play yourself like what but like they're so tied to their rigid kind of you know um the pageantry and the dates and the kind of all the bullshit you know it's set in stone so but and, and one thing i have to mention too is just the the effect on the unhoused folks in japan and and, and in tokyo in particular it's just we've seen them already being moved out of a park um that is now an olympic related development you know this is the only housing people had, they, they're facing kind of similar encampment sweeps there. There's a group called Hungarin no Kai that we've been talking to for the last two years. Um, and they've been, you know, trying to mitigate the harm and raise awareness around this stuff. You know, it's like Tokyo is obviously a big place, like, and it's a very, you know, kind of like it on LA in, in a certain sense, it's a very compliant kind of, um, believes in its own exceptionalism kind of, um, it, it, as, as, as a generalization, you know, um, and, and so what we so they invited us to come to Tokyo this summer and uh, it'll be one year out from the opening ceremonies of 2020 and uh, with potentially with, with with folks from the no Paris movements, um, potentially with some no Boston folks, um, maybe some other folks that have either had the Olympics or kicked them out. We're talking to one of the main pr people behind Cal uh, the no Calgary bid. He might be coming out. Um, it's all kind of up in the air right now, but we launched a fundraiser earlier this week to send um, several members of no Olympics LA out there to a document what's going on there we're gonna we're gonna go to fukushima and get a tour of it yeah. we're, gonna, we're gonna be working with activists there um uh doing skill shares kind of like saying what you what you know who's good at what how can we help help each other be better and like kind, kind of to, to try to force the first corporal kind of real life meeting of anti-olympic groups of this because even though we are all none of us have any money we're all doing this as volunteers but like the ioc is his, feels historically weak right now um, yeah. Even though it looks like Tokyo is going to happen, there's a way we might be able to leverage this, or at the very least, to be able to hope to influence some of the narratives coming out of Western media of now, which there's been very little recently writing about Tokyo or Paris. And that's something that I think we're good, at least, I think, of trying to influence media narratives in America. And I think at the very least, I think, we're, you know, we've proven we can do some stuff there. So we're raising about $10,000. We've already reached about half of our goal. Um, nice. If you have a couple bucks, we really... Uh, would love you to kick us some dollars. The the fundraiser is going on at nolympicsla.com slash Tokyo. And uh, links will be in the description. Yeah. And so, um, you know, a few of our members are self-funding, um, but some of our members were trying to get some folks that are maybe facing displacement right now and maybe some of our coalition partners who have been in the tenants' right movement uh, longer than I have, for example. Um, so it should be a nice hopefully eight, nine, ten of us, plus folks from other countries and cities, um, plus the folks on the ground in Tokyo, and folks from Korea will be coming from Pyeongchang who have been fighting that there as well, uh, who are the resistance movement from last year. Mm -hmm. So we're really trying to get the whole gang together. Um, and, and, and the IOC will also be there, of course, doing their kind of whatever, you know, whatever the fuck they're doing. Um, and and so, yeah, that's what we're really, we're, we're really pushing for right now for people to give us a few dollars to help, you know, amplify that, or at least to just be talking and like dig in, go, go to our website, see all the stuff we've been collecting, all these, all these links about what's going on in Tokyo and, and Paris and kind of at the very least start paying attention if, if you're based in LA or one of these other cities that's maybe, you know, going to host one or has a bid on the horizon, maybe uh, reach out to us at, at nolympicsla.com. Um, we'd love to talk to folks. We're, we're we're talking to folks in Singapore right now because there's like a bid brewing in like 2030 or 2032. It's 2019, but helping other folks, like the earlier you yeah. get in, there are other folks that like have seen some of our presentations and we're like, here, we'd love to give you all of our information. So if you're a person who wants information from, from us, we have all sorts of stuff. Um, that, yeah, but yeah, so a bunch of us are going to be in Tokyo in about three months. Nice. And um, we'll also be, uh, I can probably tease, there will also be some stuff on that day on July 24th happening all around the world that we're working on. Um, well, I wanted to ask, David, so uh, the IOC seems to be weathering a lot more criticism than they've historically gotten. Are they still as strong as they used to be, or does it seem like the IOC is beginning to fracture? I don't see any fractures within the IOC at the moment because they are impervious to criticism. 
you know, see no evil, hear no evil. I mean, it doesn't seem to matter how many criticisms are made, how articulate they are. Mm. These people are cocooned by their relationships to money and power. The IOC itself is a self-selecting organisation. I mean, it's like, how do you get on the IOC? Ah, oh, the IOC appoints you. You know, that's how it happens. I mean, there are 15 places also reserved on the IOC for the presidents of international sports federations amongst the most corrupt and incompetent organisations in international affairs, all of whom get a lot of money from the Olympics. I mean, remember, where does actually all that money that the IOC is bringing in right, from sponsorship and television, because they're in control of it, not the hosts. Right. Where does it go, right? I mean, a tiny bit goes to hosts to cover, um, you know, a fraction of the costs of staging, but none of the capital costs. And then a massive chunk of it goes to the international sports federations. So you have this totally incestuous, clientelistic relationship. Nobody wants to rock the boat. You know, you've it's got athletes, church, record, right? you know. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. you know, but without such groovy outfits. And at, yeah. least, at yeah. least they sort of sponsored interesting architecture and art, which is more than can be said for the IOC. Agreed. You know, and Thomas Bach is completely impervious. These people really do believe their own ideology, and we are going to have to work twice as hard and shout twice as loudly, you know, to pierce this carapace of self-regard and ignorance. That said, you know, there is a weakness, and they are worried because the world's men, and the citizenry of many cities, as we know. We've discussed Denver today, mm -hmm. we've discussed Calgary, but they're not alone. I mean, you know, six or seven cities have cancelled bid proposals. I mean, even in Budapest, you know, which is wrapped up by Viktor Orban and Fidesz, you know, a grassroots movement established a referendum process and got an absolutely massive vote that killed that bid dead. So, you know, the reality of what the Olympics is is bursting out through the, uh, through the screen. I mean... I would say the greatest legacy of Rio 2016 is to demonstrate unequivocally to the mayors and citizens of the world that the Olympics is a way of destroying your city. And I am sorry for the people above all the poor of Rio who have had to endure what can only be described as a shitstorm. Um, but it has made it so tangible, I think, to everybody else that there is a weakness. I mean, I think on the other, you know, the other area, you know, what has the IOC got left in the bag to defend itself? Urban development, clearly after Rio, is very hard to sell. Environmental sustainability, almost impossible to sell as a meaningful thing. Clean athletes, you know, anti-doping. I mean, these are the people who let the Russians off the hook and back into the Olympic movement, despite the largest state-sponsored doping um, practice, you know, in Olympic history. So I think the ideological cupboard is actually very thin. And what we have is a, you know, soulless bureaucracy, you know, sustained by power and money. Uh, hey, and listen, let's not knock power and money when it comes to <laughs> politics. That counts for a lot. But there is a real opportunity. There is an opportunity. I mean, can we expect reform from these people? Can we expect contrition? Can we expect self-reflection? I don't think so. But we do have the opportunity to really challenge the dominant ideology and the dominant order. I, I also wanted to ask about the book you have uh, coming out uh, August in the UK and February here in the US, I believe, uh, The Age of Football, The Global Game in the 21st Century. And sort of because football is outside of America, this very global phenomenon, but it has a lot of the same features that the IOC has in terms of corruption and problems with what's getting built where, how the, the big international gatherings are done. I'm specifically thinking about Qatar, but I was hoping you could talk about sort of international sport in general and where we see this trending in the 21st century. So, you know, the, my account of football in the uh, 21st century is threefold. I mean, on the one hand, um, economics, economic and political power have always sought to shape and control football as a game. So nothing new there, you know, Mussolini, this goes back a long time. But in the 21st century the game has been colonised more comprehensively by these forces than ever before. The scale of globalisation in global football and the degree to which money, power and talent is sucked from the peripheries to the centre is greater than ever. Similarly, politically, I mean, we now have a situation, you know, where football is the 
central plank of Qatar's foreign policy. The Chinese Central Committee, Xi Jinping himself, have declared that, you know, hosting, qualifying for and winning the uh, World Cup are official markers of social and economic progress. The Argentinian government at one point nationalised television rights. The Myanmar junta, you know, corralled all of the scumbags that constitute the business class there to set up their own Premier League. What is interesting about football and what gives me a modicum of hope is that there has been a backlash alongside this and there is a fragile uh, emergence, a volcanic archipelago of resistance in football. You know, listen hard enough and you can hear anti-commercial forces at work across the footballing world challenging, you know, um, corrupt um, authorities, um, owners who take the precious cultural capital solidarities and meanings that are based in football clubs around the world and said, actually, there are limits to what you can do. And above all, you know, the rise of women's football, not just as a professional spectacle, but as a huge grassroots movement across the world after like 120 years of completely dominant masculinity in the game is saying every day another world is possible, another world is necessary. So, you know, as with Gramsci, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Football, it seems to me, despite every effort to bend it, you know, to the powers that be, to make it serve the dominant institutions, continues to offer forms of resistance, an alternative way of thinking, solidarities that cannot be reduced to money and power. Um, And, you know, in this world, that remains very, very precious material. So I retain, despite my well-honed cynicism, a modicum of hope for the future. No, I think that's a really, really good note to end on and also a good way to look at the the way that localities and cities and f- groups like the Olympics are trying to seize back that control and resist this monolithic mer- narrative. Uh, so I want to thank you very much, Professor uh, Goldblatt, for joining us. And uh, Johnny, uh, thank you very much again. And uh, folks can find your fundraiser on Fundly or on the No Olympics homepage, and we'll have those links below. But uh, if we don't talk to you before that, I hope you all have a lovely trip and uh, really throw down in Tokyo. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.